All right, it's so good once again to reach this point in our worship service where we join together all sites and venues. For those who are live together here in the room, those can hear my voice on a podcast, or if you're watching from downtown, Fitchburg, uh, Gospel Fusion, Traditions, or Blackhawk, your couch. It's so good to be together. My name is Ben, and I'm the pastor of middle school ministry here at Blackhawk. To the Chinese speakers in our church, Show of hands, who here in, recognizes Play Along Everywhere, this poster? So raise your hand if you recognize. All right, I got about like, maybe it's like a little over half. You've seen this poster before. Keep calm and carry on. Anybody know what country created this poster? Let's hear it. Yeah, United Kingdom. Yep, there you go. During what world event did they design this poster? World War II, that's right. And the most fun thing about this poster is that you can make it into all kinds of other things. Here are a few examples here. Call Batman, right? You know, or uh, panic and freak out, you know. So many fun things that you could kind of do to camp on, right? Transform and make it your own. So uh, let's go back to the original for a second. So uh, the UK government designed this poster in 1939 in anticipation of what they thought was coming, which were uh, aerial bombings on major British cities from the Luftwaffe, the Nazi Air Force. And so they, they came up with this slogan to capture the attitude that they believed would be helpful uh, for the British people to persevere through these trying times that were on their way. Now, the poster itself didn't get much use uh, during World War II, but it entered the public imagination about 20 years ago when an old copy was discovered in a used bookstore, and it's kind of snowballed from there, because this thing, it's this simple design that communicates so much, that really captures that cultural moment of what was happening during the war. This poster communicates, uh, first of all, we're at war, <laughs> Right? These, these bombings, they're coming. We don't know when or where exactly, but don't, don't be surprised when they come. It also captures a piece of British culture, right? Like, we're the stiff upper lip people, you know? So keep calm when the hard stuff comes. And it communicates a sense of, like, it takes all of us in the United Kingdom. It doesn't matter if you're enlisted in the armed services or not. It takes all of us. The crown needs all of us to work together and do our part to hopefully achieve victory for the allied forces in World War II. Keep calm and carry on. Today we're continuing in our series through the book of Acts, the book that tells the stories of the first 
generation of followers of Jesus after he died and rose from the dead. And today we come to a story, our second story that comes in this series, that's the story of conflict between this fledgling Jewish, this fledgling Jesus movement, about 10,000 people at the time, and the Jewish leadership in the city of Jerusalem, the ruling council, the political slash religious ruling authorities. And in this story, we could say that the Jesus movement is under attack from the leadership in the city of Jerusalem. And so a poster designed for a country under attack might be an interesting starting point uh, for us. But of course, you know, the United Kingdom isn't the people of God, and uh, World War II is different from the conflict that we're going to read about. So if only the poster could be easily adapted to make new kinds of things, like, oh, it can! Ha <laughs> ha! Great, we win. Okay, so I wonder, I wonder, if we allow Acts chapter 5 to redesign the Keep Calm and Carry On poster for people of God who experience times of conflict with the world around us. I wonder, what, what would that poster say? Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Acts at chapter 5. Uh, I'm going to be using uh, the journal. We can, we can take away the, these posters for now. I'm going to be using the journal. So uh, we're going to be starting in verse 17. It's on page 19 of the journal as I read. Uh, and you can, uh, you can pull up a paper Bible or your phone or whatever. And as I read, uh, we're going to try something as we read this story. We're going to adopt kingdom Language. Jesus talks about the movement of his followers as the kingdom of God. And that's a phrase that we use uh, around here at Blackhawk somewhat frequently. But have, you ever, have you ever thought about that phrase? Kingdom of God? It's kind of it's, it's like a political sounding phrase, but also religious sounding. And so as, as we read this story, using kingdom language might unlock something about this conflict between the leadership in Jerusalem and the people of God. Let me set the scene for us. Uh, the leaders of the Jesus movement, they're known as the apostles. They are teaching and healing and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is king in the public square. And some people are joining the movement uh, others are staying at a little bit of a distance, but not too much of a distance because they like the healings. The entire city of Jerusalem is hyped and the leadership is paying attention. Let's see how they react. Acts 5 verse 17. Then the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees, kind of the majority party in the ruling council, uh, they were filled with jealousy. Because <laughs> the crowd's hyped, right? 
So they arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Last time we uh, had a story of conflict, they arrested two guys, and now they're arresting 12, the entire leadership of the movement. The kingdom of God is under attack. The apostles, they're, they're kind of like prisoners of war in this situation. But during the night, an angel of the Lord entered, opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. God sends in the special forces. He's getting them out of there. And this is the point, right, where, where the angel's going to bring them to safety, right? That's, that's, that's the strategy, right? Go, says the angel, stand in the temple courts and tell the people all about this new life. So at daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. Isn't, isn't that where they were arrested? This is... The angel's just sending them right back to danger. This is very strange military strategy for the kingdom. Okay. This little ellipsis is just in a paragraph where the leaders say, where'd they go? And then someone <laughs> came, we're skipping ahead to the next paragraph. Someone came and said, look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers, here's a kingdom that knows how to do military, and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. No, they're not, they're not above using force. They just recognize it's not strategic at this moment. So the apostles were brought in and made to appear before the Sanhedrin. This is the ruling council in the city of Jerusalem. Remember I said the Sadducees are like the majority party in that council. They're going to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, the priest said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Okay, let's pause here in the story. We have two kingdoms, and they're in conflict. The, the apostles, the, like the senior ministers in the kingdom of God, are before like a tribunal. And the, the prime minister, we could say, the chief priest is there, and he is questioning them. Now, God anticipated moments like this for his kingdom. He knew that his kingdom would face moments of conflict like this. And so God appointed in advance uh, a speechwriter for moments just like this. And Jesus prepared his disciples for moments like this. He told them about this speechwriter from the Gospel of Luke. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about your national defense strategy, how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. The Holy Spirit will act like a speechwriter, he will give you 
these notes and then the voice of the apostles will come together with the notes that the Holy Spirit gives them. And it's like when you hear this speech that's coming, you're hearing both the voices of the apostles, but also the voice of the Holy Spirit. So I want us to think like political speech writers for a moment. If you were the speechwriter for the apostles right now, what, what kind of a speech would you write for them? What kind of notes would you give them? They're about to stand here before the tribunal, right? They're enemies, men who are not afraid to use force. I'm thinking, how can I get those apostles out of there, <laughs> right? What is going to keep them from harm and get them as far from this situation as possible? Jesus once said, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I think that's my speech writing strategy in this moment if I'm the Holy Spirit. So let's see, what, what did the Holy Spirit inspire? Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. This is the same line that Peter and John used when they were arrested uh, a couple stories back. But then the rest of this speech, they just proclaim the good news about Jesus. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead. That doesn't actually say from the dead in the text. That's an interpretation that the NIV uh, translator said. Might actually be saying that, they, that God raised up Jesus to be uh, uh, the Messiah that he had appointed in advance. Because talking not just about his death, but also about his life, his teaching, his healing whom you killed by hanging him on a cross, and God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, uh, archegos and soter in the Greek, this word pair that communicates that Jesus' kingship is both political and spiritual. It's political in the sense that that the kingdom of God is about how we organize as human beings for the good of all. And it's also about how King Jesus wants to rescue us from the kingdoms of this world. But that rescue is also a spiritual rescue because these kingdoms are indeed spiritual kingdoms. And he also saves us spiritually from the sin in our own hearts that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. God wants to offer forgiveness. And we are witnesses, the apostles say. We lived with him for three years. We saw him executed. And we put his dead, abused body in a tomb. And then a few days later, we ate broiled fish with the guy. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the good news. Jesus is king, and the response is to repent and obey. Turn from your current way of life 
and follow King Jesus in the ways that he commands us to live. This is, it's going to take me a while to erase. I got excited up here. This is not the speech I would have written for a group of men standing before their enemies. What a strange kingdom. Let's see how the council responds. Let's read on. When they heard this, they were furious, split open with rage. They wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee minority party in the council named Gamaliel, teacher of the law who was honored by all the people. This guy, kind of a big deal. We, you can read about him in other Jewish literature from the day. And one of his prized students was a guy named Saul, whom we're going to meet in a story in two weeks. He stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the apostles, the men, be put outside for a little while. And then he addressed the Sanhedrin. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theodos appeared, claiming to be somebody. About 400 men rallied to him. Revolution! And he was killed. All his followers were dispersed. It all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the sentence and census and led a band of people in revolt. And he too was killed. And all his followers were scattered. Let me ask you, have you ever heard of the revolution of Theudas? No. That's Gamaliel's point. <laughs> Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. Because if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves waging war against God. And his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Gamaliel's speech is fascinating. He's making this political slash theological slash historical argument. It's, it's like he's saying... You know, if this is from God, we can't stop it. And we wouldn't want to be fighting against God. I mean, we are the appointed rulers of God's kingdom, so let's not risk that. But if it's not from God, it's going to fail. It's a kind of a strange, uh, strange argument to be making because it would be against what the Sadducees would have thought historically. It fits in the Pharisees' way of processing history and God's sovereignty in these things. But the Sadducees, the majority party, they were also persuaded. These two parties, they operate like frenemies in the council. 
and um, and it it works. They decide not to kill these guys. Now, was was Gamaliel right? It's not a great theological argument if you read the whole Bible. There are plenty of stories of times when God wants something to happen and it doesn't come to pass. And other times throughout history when movements can thrive even though God has nothing to do with them. In this particular instance, it happened to be true, but you didn't need Gamaliel to tell you that. An angel broke him out of prison for crying out loud. So, but the council's persuaded, brought them back in, and had them flogged. Notice the men in the council didn't do the flogging. No, that's brutal work. You got servants for that. And then, with the apostles standing there in immense pain, and public humiliation, they say, don't speak in the name of Jesus again. Now get out of here. So, in this story, the kingdom of God is under attack. The, the strategy of the kingdom of God is to recruit defectors from the kingdoms of this world. <laughs> Tell them, come over to this kingdom. How, by, by coercion? No, by the proclamation of a simple message and through healing. The national defense strategy of the kingdom of God is to send in the special forces just to send the apostles right back into danger. And the speechwriter writes this really strange speech for the apostles that before their enemies, they're trying to like recruit them <laughs> And tell them the good news about forgiveness of sins. <laughs> what are we to do with a story like this? How, how does this story speak to us in 2021 in the communities where we do life? Well, perhaps it'll help to start by asking this question. Is the kingdom of God under attack today. It was clearly under uh, attack uh, in this story in Acts 5. Is it under attack today? Makes me a little bit nervous to even raise the question because I bet if we could poll everyone who can hear my voice right now, we would get a wide variety of answers to that question. It depends on your personality type, probably. Probably depends on your family, where you live, where you're from, maybe where you go to school or where you work. I bet people have strong opinions about this question. Is the kingdom of God under attack today? Your personal experience shapes how you respond to that question. And the same was true in the United Kingdom during World War II. Your personal experience shapes what you know about that question. If you were living in London during September and October of 1940, when the Blitz bombed that city, city for 56 out of 57 consecutive days, you knew that your country was under attack. 
you didn't need the radio to tell you that. On the other hand, if you were living in a remote rural area far to the north, perhaps in the Scottish Highlands, your daily experience of the conflict was, was very different. In the kingdom of God today, there are people around the world who live under constant threat because of their obedience and allegiance to King Jesus. This happens in many places around the world. Some of those are bordered places, like this country or that country. Sometimes uh, they can be not bordered places, like uh, a family. Black Hawk Church is a multi-ethnic, multinational church. And we have people in our community who have experienced intense religious persecution for following Jesus, including threats to their own life. And for those of us who might, might feel disconnected from that, there's an opportunity for us to become aware and identify with our brothers and sisters around the world who experience um, this conflict uh, more overtly. And then there are also subtle forms of persecution which are worth our consideration as well. At this point, it could be helpful for us to pause and define this word persecution. For our purposes today, we're going to define persecution as suffering harm from another person for obeying Jesus. This phrase, obeying Jesus, I'm pulling it straight from Acts chapter 5. This is a phrase that the apostles use twice to describe uh, their posture. And I'm intentionally defining the word harm, using the word harm, which can be a broad thing. This could include physical harm verbal harm, but even social harm could be included here to be looked down upon or mistreated because of allegiance to Jesus. And I'm defining the term broadly, not so that we can like weaponize the word persecution whenever we want to, but rather to draw this connection between different subtle and overt forms of harm that we might uh, experience as followers of Jesus. Because King Jesus, his kingdom challenges all other power structures in our human societies. And so if we pledge allegiance to Jesus as King, we will come in conflict with the kingdoms of this world. And any given one of us may suffer harm as a result. And it's valuable for us to have a conversation about this because when we suffer harm, we feel vulnerable. And so our first reaction when we feel vulnerable Our natural reaction is self-defense. But the Holy Spirit wants to inspire a different kind of reaction. If we suffer harm for following Jesus, the hope would be that our response to that suffering would remind watching people of King Jesus. 
So let's talk about what might be helpful Christian responses to persecution. First of all, don't chase it. This might seem obvious to some, but it's worth stating. Even Jesus said, Father, take this cup from me. It is better not to suffer. Second, don't falsely claim it. The book of 1 Peter talks about this. It speaks of the difference between suffering for doing good and other forms of suffering. So, <laughs> if, I'm, uh, if I'm being a jerk who just so happens to talk about Jesus a lot, and like a, a classmate or a coworker lashes out at me verbally, Maybe I'm not being persecuted for my faith in that moment. Maybe I should just stop being a jerk. <laughs> Next thing, it kind of goes with this. Don't flatten it. Here's what I mean by that. Let's not lump all experiences of persecution together as if they are the same and felt the same way. So for instance... Let's say I'm at an extended family gathering and somehow Jesus comes up in conversation and a distant uncle scoffs at me. I suppose you could say I've suffered some harm. But that's a far cry from someone whose sister will no longer talk to you because of your allegiance to Jesus. Oh, it's so painful. And both of those are different from a family where someone is violently beaten for following Jesus, which can and does happen around the world. So let's not flatten those different experiences and treat them as if they're the same. Next, be unsurprised. King Jesus is in conflict with all kingdoms and power structures in this world. And so you may suffer harm for your allegiance to him. Jesus prepared his disciples for this. In Luke, he says this. They will seize you and persecute you on account of my name. You'll be betrayed even by parents brothers and sisters, relatives and friends. They'll put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. Now, when, when we read that, it kind of sounds like Jesus is using hyperbole, right? He's just exaggerating for effect. But when the apostles heard this, they might have thought, yeah, that's kind of how it turned out. Followers of Jesus are unsurprised when these things happen. Okay, next up, get into the big stuff. Love your enemies. When the apostles stood before the Sanhedrin, they invited them to receive forgiveness for their sins. When they did that, they were just following in the model of Jesus 
who said, you have heard that it is said, that it is said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who what? Persecute you. This is an upside down, strange, supernatural response. Paul puts it this way in the book of Romans. Don't repay evil for evil as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Overcome evil with good. If we suffer because of the name of Jesus, let our response remind people of Jesus. Strange response. Brings us to the last point. Rejoice and carry on. To get this, we have to finish our story from Acts 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin bleeding, rejoicing, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is Messiah. They are flogged. And how do they respond? They rejoice and they carry on. They never stopped with their role. Whatever your role is within God's kingdom, their role was teaching, proclaiming, healing. They went right back to it. Strange. Why would they rejoice? Are they not aware of what has just happened to them? Oh no, they know that they have suffered disgrace. But they they think, oh, we've been counted worthy to suffer disgrace. This is textbook definition of an oxymoron. These two phrases do not belong together. Counted worthy of suffering disgrace? Why would the apostles respond this way. They know they've suffered disgrace. But as they process their experience in the presence of God, they feel honored. The last person to be flogged was their king. When they suffer. In Jesus' name, they put him on display for all to see. They become an image of Jesus in that moment. They teach, they heal, they proclaim, they're arrested, they're flogged. Jesus taught, he proclaimed, he healed, he was arrested, he was flogged. And so the apostles stand and they say, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, That in this moment, we get to be the body of Christ. And it is awful. And it is beautiful. And it is strange. It is upside down. It is unlike anything in any kingdom of this world. And this is the culture of the kingdom of God. We rejoice 
and carry on. Here's the poster. Our king wears a crown of thorns and he challenges every social structure in our worlds. And so as a result, if you pledge allegiance to him and obey his teachings and where he leads you, you follow, you may suffer harm for following him. And if we do, when we experience that desire to defend ourselves, the Holy Spirit wants to inspire a response that would remind people of him in whose name we are suffering in that moment, that we would be people who love our enemies. And then strangely, we rejoice. Thank you, God, that you've counted us worthy, even though we haven't chased this. And then we carry on with whatever it is that is our role in the kingdom. It takes all of us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love, your presence here. I pray for anyone who is currently experiencing pain as a result of suffering harm for their allegiance to you. Would you be their comfort? Would you, by your spirit, inspire a response that reminds the world around us and reminds ourselves of who our king is? It's in King Jesus' name that we pray.